Hi, everyone. Pete Zambito here, host of Pete's Percussion Podcast. I've decided to go without the opening music this week because I wanted to briefly say something about current events. I am recording this about 24 hours after the guilty verdicts came down regarding the murder of George Floyd. When the video of his death was posted last May, I took a pause that week from posting an interview because it felt like the right thing to do. And now, I thought it would be right to comment on that current situation. In the past 24 hours, I've had a bit of time to process, read, and listen to a number of opinions and ideas about what, if anything, this verdict means. Two things come to mind. One, I feel relief that the right court decision was made. And two, I hope that this provides some measure of comfort and peace to George Floyd's family and friends who have, in the past four weeks, had to relive what is likely the worst time of their collective lives. And that's it. That's it. One of the reasons I can't go any further to read more meaning into this situation is that every day in the news for the past month or so, it feels like there's either an unarmed person of color being killed by law enforcement or there's been a mass shooting somewhere in this nation. Or both. So really, how good are you going to feel about one decision? The work continues. That's it. That is the message always. The work continues. So, on that note, let's get to the show and get to this week's interview. This is episode 238, and you will hear my conversation with the Chair of Instrumental Studies and Percussion Professor at the University of Panama, Carlos Camacho. I'm meeting Carlos for the first time in the interview, and I'm glad he was up for the conversation. I came across his name as he was going to appear at an inclusion, diversity, and equity event online and was planning to appear alongside a number of recent guests I've had on the show. So I got in touch with him, and he was up for the conversation. Carlos' story is worth hearing in full. He both grew up and now works in Panama, but he spent his college and grad years studying in the U.S. with a number of well-known percussion pedagogues and performers. He's a composer, performer, administrator, and even started the PAS chapter in his country. A great thing. So we also have a lot of common interests, particularly international soccer, as you will find out. So let's get to it. We recorded this interview over Zoom on March 17th, 2021, and it begins right now. So, Carlos, give me a summation of your percussion responsibilities as they are at this point. I'm at the University of Panama. I am the uh, one of the percussion faculty but I'm as well director of the School of Instrumental Studies. So I do have a lot of administration responsibilities, um, but as a, in regards to the percussion department, I uh, were three faculty. We split the studio kind of equally, and I uh, teach applied lessons, and I conduct the percussion ensemble. 
tell me a little bit more about the university. Is this the kind of the flagship institution for for the country in terms of the music, or are there other places that do similar things? Yes, here in Panama, uh, we have a few different uh, schools, uh, music schools. We have the uh, National Institute of Music, and we have a youth uh, elementary music program. Uh, those two places you can study music very formally, but you don't get a degree of sorts. So the only place where you can get a music degree is in the University of Panama. We have two degrees. We have two programs, uh, Bachelor of Music, which is a regular standard music uh, program, and we have a uh, uh, degree in performance in the instrument that you choose. And that's the only place where you can get uh, such a degree. We do have, um, though, uh, different branches throughout the different provinces of the country. So you would be able to go to a different province if you are born in a different uh, place and still study music at the University of Panama, not in the main campus, but at the University of Panama, uh, nevertheless. Who are the other folks that you teach with? And, and, and how do you, you said you kind of split up the teaching, but what are the ways that you all, does that change on a regular basis? Or do you, is it kind of, you have your set thing that you all uh, kind of focus on. Yeah, well, it's it's interesting that every school kind of works a little bit differently, you know. And the way that we do it here, um, the we're three, as as you mentioned, is Professor Ella Ponce. She is a, a great percussionist. She uh, is a dual uh, nationality with Chile and Panama, and she is a percussionist. She studied in Chile as well, and she's the one that started the program some years ago. Uh, she was teaching, uh, she was taking all the load herself until I came back. I, I started at the University of Panama in 2018. So we were then split in the studio pretty much 50-50. And the next year in 2019, uh, Jose Mires is uh, the other guy that uh, joined. So we have uh, basically, uh, we have the non-majors and we have the majors. So the, the people that study uh, the Bachelor of Music they do have to take an instrument, and many of them take percussion. Uh, those students are split between Ella and Mires. I'm only teaching the majors. Uh, and then regarding the majors, well, we kind of, uh, we have maybe like a, a, a deal where if you bring somebody that, that you were the recruiter, you were the person in contact with that person, then that guy is going to study with you. Uh, and every now and then we have students that they, they just kind of, landed here and they don't really have a preference to who they want to start it with, then it depends uh, It depends uh, how are the numbers coming in. For example, we usually, if we have six people uh, that got in for the year, we try to do two, two, and two. Uh, this year, I think it's the first time that we are, we have an uneven number of, of freshmen incoming in. So I'm just taking, I just took uh, one student that he was studying privately with me um, and the other faculty, each one gets two. Uh, my my logic being, well, I'm I'm doing the administration kind of work, so I you know I'm a little bit more busy with that. So uh, yes, we kind of get together and we we decide how we do it. In other studios, each studio they kind of decide what to do. You know, some we have a uh, an evening program and we have a like a full time program. So if there are students that are enrolled only for the evening program, well, there are some faculty that teach uh, specifically in the evening, uh, exclusively in the evening. So 
for other instruments such as clarinet, you have uh, two teachers, uh, three teachers, two in the day and one in, in the night in, at night. So if you want to study at night, you have to go with that teacher. Um, with us, it's a little bit more uh, uh, not so strict, and and we also have instances that that in the middle of the program we decide that that we want to switch a student or it would be good if you uh, start studying with this other person. There's been um, cases of st students that they've been studying with the same person for many years, even from before the university. So it's about time maybe you, for you to switch professor. So we've, we've done that too. So I think the important thing is to, you know, talk and be communica communicative. <laughs> Sounds like that, that arrangement works pretty well then for all. Yeah. All, yeah. This may relate to the, you know, you getting, you said you started there in 2018, correct? Yes. So when you, when you get the job there, was that a, you knew going in that it was like a partial administrative or was that something that is a recent uh, situation? Yes, that was a recent situation. Well, that uh, I started as a director uh, in next year, 2019. Okay. And that's unusual because I'm not a tenured professor, and that's usually a position for a tenured professor. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, it's, it's a small program, and sometimes you don't have that many people that are willing to, to do the job. Many, honestly, many of our faculty have already done it. Right. You know, they already pay their share. So, yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> uh, so they had to find somebody to do it and, and I seem like a good fit for that position. So that's how it, it happened. Yeah. <laughs> just like, no, that, no, no. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Here you go, newbie. <laughs> um, what, what kinds of things are actually part of that, that part of your job? Well, yes, it's, it's actually a lot of work because we have to do all the scheduling and one of the issues is that we always, every year, we have um, different numbers. You know, it, you never know how many students you're going to have in each instrument. And it's difficult to be able to plan out how the classes, the schedule of classes are going to happen. You know, um, for example, uh, this year, we didn't have any students. Uh, we don't have any incoming students for oboe, for tuba, for violin, for cello, you know, there are many students that we're not even getting. Uh, so we need to know that. So, so the scheduling of the classes, we, we can account for that. You know, we, we don't need to uh, offer uh, freshman violin because there's not freshman violin students. Uh, so that's something, a lot of planning that we have to do. I have to organize auditions. Uh, we have to, uh, I need to schedule and organize all the, the recitals for, for you know the great uh, finishing the program, um, do a lot of if, if, if faculty or students need some kind of certification, some kind of letter that they need the the, the program to certify. I I need to do that as well. So yeah, it's kind of a lot of administration work and uh, well a lot a lot of time in meetings and committees. Uh, the, uh, another thing of, as a full time faculty is that you need to be available for uh, for committees and. Right. And different projects, you know, that happen at school because in uh, we have uh, different areas, and in the applied music uh, section, in the applied, that's where we don't have many tenured professors. Most of the professors for instruments and performance are uh, part time. Yeah, so that's what I meant when we don't have many, uh, and many of the many of the tenured professors ha have already been 
uh, directors. And most of the, the faculty that we have on instruments are a lot of very young people that have come and finished their degrees overseas and in, in, in the foreign countries, really strong performers. Uh, but I was lucky enough to be considered as a person that could, uh, could be director for the school. That makes sense uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> in terms of the, the kind of the spacing out of, of different uh, professors and programs and all that. In your department, you said it's a pretty small, uh, generally pretty small. So does that mean that uh, faculty are asked to teach like it's frequently that small that, you know, a professor might teach like their area and, you know, like a theory or, uh, you know, like an oral skill, like, the, you know, kind of have to, you know, kind of fill up their teaching load that way. Does that, does, do you all have to do some of that? Well, it's sometimes my first year I had to teach conducting. <laughs> <laughs> all right. You know, so it was a little bit intimidating because I was just starting my first year at my, at this job and I had to study, con- uh, uh, teach conducting, but it, it was fine. It was all right. So sometimes that happens. Some of, uh, some of my colleagues are teaching some uh, music history, or uh, class piano, things like that. But in our performance division, it's a little bit smaller. But it's not a small department. We we have, as I said, two degrees, and we have the, the instrumental degree, and we have the, the for the music degree. We have a lot of people because many people don't have the skill to pass an audition to uh, to be admitted. But for the for the music uh, portion there is not so competitive to get in, right? So many people take that and we do need, uh, we also have a, a lot of faculty that are teaching these more uh, theory, theory class, theory-based classes. Uh, but sometimes we do need help. And then you might, a, a person that is in the, in the performance division might be asked to teach a different, uh, a different class. Also because it helps them to get paid more if they get paid by the hour and mm-hmm. they don't have enough, I don't know, uh, cello students. Well, then, if you teach a solfege class or something like that, that that also helps you out. There's a lot of a lot of college faculty are just like, yep, <laughs> exactly. Yes, that that is what you got to do, and yes, you yeah, just go ex- for it. Exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. Do what you got to do. Where? So, tell me a little bit about getting the position. Where were you beforehand? What was kind of the? What did you see as kind of the? Um, the goal that, or the things that you wanted to do within the percussion realm and then, of, co- of course, kind of the outside of that. Yes, right. You know, I I was in the United States for 10 years. I went to school there. I did my undergrad, my master's, and my doctorates. And when I was doing my doctoral degree, it's when I got my first job, my first college teaching job at Ohio Wesleyan University. And it was a great little program. I really loved it there. The, the next step was looking for a more full-time job, uh, tenure track job. But I was also debating whether I, you know, I was already starting to, to feel that I wanted to be closer to home. I always knew that I wanted to come back and, 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 and teach here. I just didn't know when I was going to come back. Uh, and uh, as I started doing research uh, here. The, the system works a little bit different because it's not like, it's not that the opposition opens up. You can always apply because you apply for a pool of faculty, you know, so you get in the pool and if you are needed, then they ask you to uh, teach a class. And um, we're lucky enough that in the percussion department, it's, it's a popular instrument. So, you know, more than harp or tuba, you know what I mean? So we do get a lot of students and there was a need, uh, as I mentioned, Professor Ella, she was taking the whole teaching load by herself. Um, 
so so the, it was a perfect chance for for me to to be invited to teach uh, these these classes. Um, I was at Cincinnati, and I, I would travel to Delaware, Ohio, where I was. Um, I would commute there, Ohio Westland, and uh, and I did take a few orchestra auditions that year. I, w- I did apply to other university positions in in um, in the United States, but uh, when I got the job here, I said like, well, that's definitely what I want to do. I I do want to go. Uh, back to Panama, be close to my family, be close to friends. And also, uh, well, when you understand how the tenure uh, job uh, thing works and you know that it takes a few years to get there, then it's like, you know what? I don't want to, I want to start it right away. I don't want to wait too long. If I know that I want to go to Panama eventually for me to spend, you know, three or four more years in a different place just to get the experience or whatnot, to come back four years later um, and start from zero uh, in, in Panama, you know, like I, that's when I started thinking maybe the best idea is just to come back right away. But also I, I liked being here because I was sure that whoever was going to replace me at Ohio Wesleyan was going to be a great person, you know, was going to be really well-educated, really well-trained. And I was feeling that here I could really make a difference. When you first get in and you and you you know you you see kind of the layout of of the school, what are the things you're like? Okay, here's this this and this that I want to I, I want us to get going on, you know, right off the bat. Well, one of the first things that I I knew I wanted to get going is uh, uh, percussion ensemble. I the percussion and whistle wasn't too formal. They would kind of play some percussion ensemble music every now and then. But I, uh, the way that it kind of works is that you have to take chamber music and, and you sign up for whatever code you want to sign up. And you might be, you might show up with guitars and trombones and trumpets. Yeah. So I was able to kind of like make uh, a class specifically for percussion and have an actual percussion ensemble because it's just, it gets exhausting to be looking out for, uh, pieces that have the exact instrumentation of the instruments that you have at that moment. You know what I mean? So open instrumentation pieces kind of work, but you can can also do that all the time, right? Right. So definitely the idea was to have a a designated percussion ensemble, and that's what we did. Um, So yes, we had our first concert, uh, great programming, and uh, it's already been a few years, and that that works really well. So that's something that I definitely wanted to do. Um, Another thing is to definitely raise the level of... Uh, people coming into the school and also people get, getting out of school. So um, since then, we've we've seen uh, a higher level of students applying to our program, and we're able to choose uh, the students that we really want. And as I said, we're the only music program that offers a degree, so we don't have that issue of all the schools fighting over students, right, to see, like, who is going to you know, where the students can accept to go. So we, we have that luck that, you know, most students in the country want to come here. Every now and then a few students, few students uh, audition if they have the opportunity to go overseas or to a foreign country, but most of them stay here. Uh, but then we don't have to accept students just to because we need people. We are able to choose uh, which are the ones that we need in our studio. So definitely the, 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 the level has, uh, has gone higher. And, uh, 
and in general, the level of our studio, because uh, this year we have two students in the in the YOA, in the Orchestra of the Americas. So that's a huge uh, accomplishment, and that puts our program in the map. And we're already seeing some uh, international students. Uh, we have three international students, and we have many more interested to come here. So I think that's something that I had as well planned to do, is to put the school in the map in Latin America. And I think that's already been, uh, it's happening. How were the facilities when you, I mean, it's only a couple of years, so it's not like, <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> but, but what kind of, what kind of things did you see as kind of strengths, weaknesses uh, on that level? Well, uh, it's a really small space for the size of, uh, for the amount of students we have. Yeah. We are lucky to have an exclusive percussion studio. We have a room for us. When I got here, we didn't really have much equipment. Uh, but for the many years of Professor Ella being here at school, she uh, she made a petition for you know for instruments. We we did have timpani. We have like orchestral instruments. We have a xylem. We have timpani. Um, but we didn't have much of like more solo instruments. So we didn't even have a, a marimba. We didn't have a vibraphone. So what we, we were doing is bringing some of our own equipment. For percussion ensemble, uh, we would bring our own, our own stuff. And then uh, Professor Ella and me, we have our vibraphones here. And that's what students were using. But for my second year, then we, we did get finally uh, uh, a nice vibraphone, a nice marimba. We got some uh, a nice glockenspiel and xylophone. We got some other drums. So then we have a better... Uh, a better situation. Um, it's still difficult that we don't have uh, more than one room because, you know, you, you want to practice with your own own time and not have like a bunch of people practicing at the same time. Yeah. But well, our, our students, they, you know, they roll a marimba out, they roll a xylophone out in the hallways yeah. and they, they do whatever they, you know, and you see that everywhere, you know, <laughs> you can never have too many percussion rooms. <laughs> right, right. Uh, right. But uh, yes, uh, so... The facilities are, it's, it's not great, but it's not terrible either, you know, because many years ago, there was just nowhere to be. You you had to be kind of in the hallways or in the sun outside uh, mm-hmm. with a snare drum or a pad. So now we're definitely in a better, better situation. And, you know, pros and cons, you know, when when uh, we don't have the greatest facilities in, in Ohio Westland, I did. We had, I have my own office. I have an office now because I'm director, but as a faculty, we don't have our percussion office and then the percussion studio. Yeah. Uh, I did at the higher Wesleyan, but we didn't have many students. And here we have 30 plus students. So it's a, it's a good size studio. And you have a place to go. <laughs> right. You, away. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, you just yeah, have yeah. to run to school. That's all. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, that's that's great. Tell me a little bit of, of some of the challenges in terms of acquire because I mean it's one thing to if you have to get equipment and you're you're in the U.S. and you like everything's in the states pretty much. But if you're in another country, that's there's whole I would assume there's other strictures that are there uh, in terms of either time or or so. What are some of the 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 kind of the challenges to building either on on the equipment level or the the music level and acquiring well, music it's it's a challenge to to buy and purchase equipment because this is a government institu- institution so there's some transparency things and laws that need to happen 
And if this was more of a private institution, no big deal. You just kind of go to Steve Wise and buy whatever you need. Right. Um, but here they need to compete for it. Yeah. You know, they need to do yeah, so so you cannot you cannot even say that you want a Yamaha Marimba. You cannot say that you want a Marimba one. You need to say be more like you want a five octave marimba with rosewood use and who the different companies would present their proposals and and then one of them are going to be chosen yeah so um we don't have unfortunately that freedom to choose exactly what you want that's one of the the, the things with working uh with a state or government institution um Oh, and I'm sorry. Uh, and can I can I ask you yes. something before? Is that do you all? Is there uh, a system where you, there's a cap? Like there's a certain amount that you can spend that you don't have to ask for, or is it like everything has to be kind of approved in the way you're saying? I'm not exactly sure okay. how how that works because I haven't myself done that. Uh, done that. Last time was Professor Ella that 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 did that. Gotcha. Um, but. Um, but anyways, that adds to the bureaucracy of the situation. Yeah. You know, it's right. it, it you know this it's, it was many years until we got these instruments. Yeah. So uh, it's it's a lot of a lot of stuff. So and on of what we've done uh, recently, um, well, we are kind of a little bit covered with the big stuff because we have timpani, bass drum, all that. But um, sometimes we sell our old mallets. Mm. to students for very cheap because they need they need cheap uh, uh, appliances right and um, with everything that we raised we buy cymbal stands and snare drum stands and things like yeah. that so when we need like smaller stuff we try to just find a way to do it ourselves that's i guess the constant challenge i would imagine just to figure mm-hmm. out how to do that's not a, it's not a simple thing again like you're saying the you you have to go through all the hoops, or or exactly. or or just create new new revenue streams that may not have <laughs> exactly, you know. Yes, because mm-hmm. yeah, I hadn't I hadn't I, in my when I asked you that question, I, I had forgotten about the fact that, of course, as percussionists, we all need sticks and mounts. <laughs> like that's a that's a dip, that's another problem basically. Yes, and and one of the problems that we have here is that many of our students, I mean, some are middle class, uh, but many of them are uh, have a, a really difficult financial situations. Yeah. Most, and now we're living in a in a virtual online uh, education uh, moment, mm-hmm. and it's it's really difficult. And uh, many students don't have internet, uh, don't have the uh, they don't have like computers and and it, it don't have instruments home, right? Right, and, and many of them, it's not easy to them to say like, oh yeah, I'm no, playing this excerpt, just buy this mallet and buy this mallet and buy this mallet, you right. know, because it's easy sometimes you just to say that you, you you need to get a a, a a harder mallet, so just buy this mallet, mm-hmm. but they just don't really, it's not that easy for them, mm. especially in this moment with the online teaching, it's been a challenge really. Yeah. You know, and still, we're just about to start uh, in a few weeks um, the the academic year. Mm. Uh, I I did a whole year virtually. <laughs> right. I don't know if I can take a second full year. Like <laughs> we we if we have to, okay, whatever, you know. Right. But I just listening to people playing on practice pads for a whole year. <laughs> it's been it's been difficult. Yeah. When when you and your colleagues and I, I would this could be any country honestly but I mean when you go to if you go to like PASIC I would imagine that that is that an opportunity for you to just go ahead and and try to make 
some of these purchases like mallet purchases, music purchases, because it's all there. And do you all kind of plan some of that when you when you go to these major conferences? Right. Well, you know, since I've been here in 2018, I haven't gone back uh, to PASIC. Um, I I've, I've have traveled uh, a few times. I went to Miami, I went to Cincinnati and Pittsburgh, but I haven't been to one of the big conferences since I got back. But I do think I would try, if, if I was going to go, I would try to tell students that because there's many discounts there. So I would try to say, you know, be reasonable. I, I, I'm carrying my bags and my stuff, so I cannot bring you like pair of symbols for everybody. Um, but, you know, like th small things like triangles and mallets, I would definitely let them know uh, so they can take the advantage. I do, uh, uh, I have talked to some of the music stores here, here in Panama, and they do have uh, sometimes they've done for this year done a, a little special for the beginning of the year for students to get appliances in a, in a, at a discount. Yeah. So that's really good and really helpful for them. But again, a, a lot of the things that we do is that uh, when guest faculty, when faculty want to come here, uh, friends, many people, uh, since th this is a very touristic place, yeah. many times I receive calls like, hey, Carlos, I'm going to be in Panama in a little vacation. Can I do a masterclass at a university? And so like, of course, I don't have budget but you are welcome to come and do a class. <laughs> yeah. You know, so um, many, many times when that happens, I say uh, they have, they bring their own mallets and yeah. the things that they're not using anymore and they sell that to students. Uh, and sometimes they just really give it away for like whoever plays Porgy the best, you know, okay, grab yeah. this mallet, you know. Yeah. No. So that, if you want to come here and teach a class when you're on a vacation, feel free. I, I'm in, <laughs> man. <laughs> I was like, I, I've heard too many good things about Panama from friends who've been there that I'm like, oh, it has to be on the list. Oh, uh, really? <laughs> no, that's that's a great. I mean, it's kind of like a nice built-in. Um, you know, it's like you're going to want to come to Panama. <laughs> you might as well do a master class, like. <laughs> right. Of course. Of course. Yes. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about the um, kind of your composing side and, and kind of mm -hmm. how you got started doing that and what kinds of things are influences for your own compositions. Yes, I, I really like the idea of creating uh, art, of, of composing, you know, but I don't like to do stuff when I don't know what I'm doing. I kind of like to know what I'm doing. Right. So I I kind of start, started a little bit late on that. You I know, Carlos, maybe, I, I, will, I just want to jump in and say it's easier if you just know that you don't know what you're doing and exactly. then you just go forward. That's that's the way that's the way I, I roll. So exactly. anyway, I'm you sorry. Know, go ahead. That's exactly right. You know, I went to school. Uh, I t took all my theory classes mm -hmm. to then feel ready to compose just to realize that I didn't need theory. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> so, uh, but you're right. It's just like, OK, at least I felt sure I, about it. I felt confident about yeah. it, about what, what, what was I doing. So it was around maybe my junior or senior year when I started composing. Maybe the first thing, it was like a, a theory for a little project where you have to compose a little something. And I like, hey, man, this is cool. And then and then I started taking composition lessons. And from there on, I just kept going. Yeah. So uh, I've written mostly, uh, not necessarily for percussion, but something that involves percussion many times it's been like i want to do a recital with somebody and we don't have we don't find that much music you know it's still difficult to find music for percussion and other instruments so then i write a little piece for for that yeah um 
I've received also many uh, commissions from from friends and people that I know that they ask me to write pieces for them. So that's what, I, what I've done, um, and uh, and a few larger pieces for chamber music. But most recently, I've been uh, composing uh, for myself mm-hmm. uh, things that I I can play myself and build my own rep. Uh, I did a few compos- uh, composition contests. One while I was in school, and uh, recently uh, here in Panama, the the most important composition contest, the Roque Cordero, who is a really uh, important Panamanian composer. Um, so I won with a piece for solo clarinet, and uh, the next year I won with a piece for uh, choir, uh, marimba solo, and two percussionists. This sounds like me a little bit. The, that that you just put that outside motivation. Like, here's a spot in my recital. That would be great if I just wrote something. <laughs> well, you know, and it was not even my idea. It, yeah. Always my teachers told me, like, you should include one of your pieces. Yeah. Because I find, since it's my music, that's a cool thing about being a composer performer, is that you find moments to play your own music, you know? So I don't need a, a student recital at school to to do it. But then my faculty were like, you should do it. You know, you should put one of your pieces. And and then it kind of became a little tradition that every time that I did a recital, I'll make sure that I have a piece that I wrote. Uh, but now I'm kind of mostly trying to do uh, my music and some of the commissions that I've done to friends, you know, some people writing music for me as well. That is as, uh, it's also a very important part of my artistic career, just to make sure to increase Leadership for percussion from Panamanian composers and Latin American composers. And I also contribute to writing some of that music, you know, but I've uh, currently I have like three or four pieces in progress that are commissions uh, that other composers are writing for me. That's awesome. Um, I also saw is that you did you start the PAS chapter for your? Yeah. Tell me about that. Okay, yeah, that was 2014. I think I was still a student at Carnegie Mellon University. Mm-hmm. I was very involved with PAS. I was, you know, from all my years in the United States, maybe I didn't go three times to PASIC. You know, yeah. I most years I went. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so I knew how important that was for, for my... Uh, for my education and I wanted to make sure that that uh, somehow reached here. So uh, I met in, in, at PASIC with, uh, with some PAS directives and they thought that it was a great idea. So we started a chapter here. And every time I travel from maybe my summer, the summer in the US, I would do some kind of event here. Uh, we do a little bit bigger events than what a usual day of percussion would be because we uh, because here we don't really have like the actual congress the actual big event you know so then the one event that we have had to be a little bit longer and it would be almost like a little festival also almost like a little basic yep. we're not that many artists but you know a full week of 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 uh, master classes and clinics uh, with national and international people. So that's some of the work that we've done. Uh, more recently, we've been in partnership with the uh, university because we have space at the university to be the host of the event. Um, and uh, and it has been 
uh, not a really big commercial event as it had been before. Before it was big concerts, kind of very geared. You know, it would have an education component during the days, but in the evening concert, it would be for like everybody that in the city that wanted to come. Uh, for the past few years, it's been a little bit more geared uh, towards students and with a bigger education component and a recital at school for like faculty and students to go and everybody can go but it's just the fact that we don't do like a big promotion and don't spend that much uh, in concerts uh, in, in, in promotion uh, but I, I, I think that's uh, it's very important just the education component of it You, I think that's for me at this point I think it's a little bit more important because then I mean, I'm doing my own creative and stuff and concerts, you know, outside. But I think the the students can get can get a lot more uh, from the faculty, not just if they see them playing, but if they, you know, they're taught by them and still have like a some concert recital at school. The thing is that I realized that if we do this many concerts in the big theaters, just students don't show up. Mm, yeah. <laughs> And right. then it's a, a, a less, then it's an empty theater with a lot of seats. <laughs> yes. And, and, you know, if you work really hard and get it filled, you know, people is going to show up, but like people that are not precautionary, just regular people, that is great for them to, to hear that. But I'm really concerned with students being able to, to check this out because this is for them. Yeah. And if they were not going to be showing up, then I need to take the event to whatever is more accessible for them. I mean, that makes, that makes total sense. What, what is involved with establish, establishing a chapter? Well, uh, I'm not exactly sure how it would be right now if things have changed. But it was pretty, I was surprised with how easy it was uh, then. Uh, because since you already have the, the organization, I don't really need necessarily to legally open like an ONG or something like that here because right. it's, you do everything under their name. Yeah. Uh, a little bit more difficult if you do have to open a bank account of stuff like that. But the way that we've been working is that we work directly with the grant that we are offered. Uh, so um, since we are doing more education stuff and not, not so much of a lucrative uh, style, mm-hmm. um, well, that, uh, that kind of has worked out for us. So our chapter doesn't have a bank account and also makes a little thing, things a little bit easier for us. But we work with the grants and donations that we receive and we just use it completely for the year's event, mm-hmm. paying artists, paying whatever we need to pay. And for next year, then we, you know, we raise again that money and use it. And that's how we, we've been working. Is it, was it surprising that there wasn't a chapter yet or was it actually, are you kind of in the forefront for your region? Well, yes, uh, it was not surprising because we're very few classical percussionists in Panama. And, you know, that's something that classical percussionists are more involved with PAS yep. uh, than, than other genres. And we have really strong percussion tradition here in Panama, not for classical percussion. That's kind of starting really now. Uh, but But not many people that had been trained in the U.S. to kind of have uh have that tradition of attending PAS you know so um i've been president since then uh we haven't had uh, uh the, the the officers have changed a little bit but but i've remained as president uh i i think that could change uh in the future with some of our students are you know finish school and have their masters and have careers then maybe will somebody will be interested to 
to be running that. Um, but but yeah, it wasn't surprising for me that there wasn't a chapter, and there's still many places that still don't have chapters. Yeah. In Latin, Latin America, maybe the bigger countries like Mexico, Brazil, places like that, you know, but some of the smaller countries, many of them don't have still a chapter. I mean, it makes sense the the way, you know, particularly because of who is typically part, part of that organization. You know, it, it may not be as much of the kind of the most folkloric styles. Exactly. You know. And PAS is always been really very interested in you know, in, in share what percussion is and education. So they are always going to be very interested to start a chapter somewhere. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, let's back up, Carlos. So uh, where'd you grow up? Uh, I grew up here in Panama City. Uh, my mother is from uh, a different region of Panama, but she moved for her studies in to the city. And I, I grew up here in Panama City. Excellent. Um, do you have family members in the arts? I Well, my brother, he studied music uh, up to whenever he had to go to college. He used to play a classical guitar and electric bass. Um, he doesn't pursue it as a professional right now. Uh, but I, I do have a, maybe a, a cousin that she's a good, really good painter. Um, but my family, they do like music a lot as, a, as fans. Before I kind of ask you a little bit more about your career, just give me because I I have an image in my head of what of what the shape of the country is, but tell me a little bit about the regions, um, kind of borders, like some of the yeah, the, just a, just a I, just the land itself in in Panama. Of course, it it's a really small little piece of land, and it looks like a laid down letter S. You know, if you look at the map, it's in Central America. We have North America, Central America, and South America. So Central America, you know, it's the little strip of land that connects the two big body of lands, right? Uh, so we are just uh, besides uh, Colombia. You are in between Costa Rica and Colombia. Okay. Uh, that little piece of land, that's us. Uh, so we are, it's a really tiny piece of land surrounded by the two oceans. We have the Atlantic and we have the Pacific. Uh, you can drive and see both oceans within an hour. That Literally. is pretty small. <laughs> yes, it's pretty awesome. Yeah. So, um, do, you, do you have a preference? Do you, do you like one ocean over another? Uh, well, I, I think uh, the, the closest to the city... Mm -hmm. East uh, is the Pacific. Uh, you can uh, the 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 Atlantic. You, there's some like Bocas del Toro and the islands in in Cunayala and those areas are really really beautiful. But those are not the places where you can like just jump in the car and and, and get there really quick. You know that's a more like a vacation. Like let's do this trip, yeah, yeah. right? So so that's amazing. But it's not just something that you can go like that easily. And there's such for tourists and international people that it gets really expensive. Yeah. But uh, so yeah, that's more beautiful. But you know, very expensive and not so accessible. But here in the Pacific, you could literally just like jump in the car and go somewhere and be back in the afternoon and you know, enjoy that way. Awesome. Um, where is the canal in the in relation? 
Well, yes, the canal, well, it, it cuts through the whole land across. Okay. So uh, you have three main locks. Okay. And we here in Panama City, we have one of the locks that you could just try. And it's actually really close from campus where I work. Uh, you could just, just go there and, and they have a museum and you can see the boats, the ships passing by. It's really, uh, really close. Mm-hmm. And and again, then if you drive an hour, you would see the other locks. Mm-hmm. And and so so you have three main points. Uh, so yeah, the Panama Canal is really close to 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 Panama City. Yeah, okay. And then you have one in Colón, and just, if you keep going, you can see the three different areas. But uh, in Panama City, we have one of the locks. Gotcha. Now, does it have the thing where, um, like, if you like, it's 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 you know kind of in one spot, and then if there's a a boat that's gonna or something that's gonna go through, like it does the. <laughs> Like yes, the, the lock fills up so it can go through kind of thing. Right. Because because the thing is that since Panama is so thin, yeah, uh, it's way easier to cut the land so you can your ship can go across to the other ocean. Yeah. But the issue is that it was not leveled. Oh you know. So then in, in order for you to, to be able to 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 just go across, then you will have to come here, it locks. And yeah. the water races to to get to the next level, and then you right. come here, and then it lowers, so you can get to the level. You know, <laughs> so that, that that's the way it works. It's a really really strong engineering, yeah, really difficult to accomplish. But the other option was Nicaragua, where yeah. it was easier to just cut through and, and go straight. But there's so many uh, national natural disasters, potential for natural disasters, and volcanoes and seismic mm. activity and all that. Which Panama luckily don't have any of that. Mm. We don't have tornadoes. We don't have earthquake. We don't have active volcanoes. So it, it's amazing. It's just like a really privileged little country where you can be really safe. And, and many people uh, retire here, and that's one of the reasons because you know they don't have to worry about hurricanes or tornadoes. <laughs> so. Um, Yes, even though engineerly it was more difficult to accomplish the task, uh, it's just, it was just safer because you didn't have those threats. Yeah, I it's the I think somewhere in London I had seen I'd gotten to see the lot like that in in one of the the places there, and it's kind of fun because you just you just kind of like wait, and then it's like it's slow, <laughs> like it slowly fills up, and it's I mean right. just like. It's it's gonna make it. <laughs> yes, it's like you you know you feel like really excited and you think that you're gonna show on the ooh it's just gonna raise right. the water, but it's so slow that you just realize that you're on the top already. I'm like oh <laughs> yeah <laughs> right. Like I, I guess I can get a coffee and just and just and it'll still be filling up and right know, won't miss anything. <laughs> <laughs> that's very cool yeah but now, it's definitely a trip to to do if, if somebody a tourist comes here they have to go check out the panama canal it's, it's really fun to learn about the history hmm. and uh and see all the things that they have to show it's, it's really nice are there are there a number of other large large cities like panama city or is that like considerably larger than anything any of the other places in the in the country well mm, we we have some other larger cities mm-hmm. uh like santiago chitre colon uh, David in the province of Chiriqui. Uh, but you can definitely see it, it's just it's, the Panama City is definitely way more developed. Skyscrapers, it's like being in, in Miami or something like that. Uh, 
the, the rest, you know, it might be larger, uh, not larger in size, but but it would not be like little towns. They are actual larger cities, um, but they don't have all the skyscrapers and like super urban vibe. Uh, they always look a little bit more rural. Okay. Uh, but uh, yes, Panama City, uh, it's kind of definitely the metropolis main urban area of the country. Great. Now it's great for people that, that like it, like you know, to be in that thing. Other people just want like chill, be yeah. away from traffic, be you know, it's it's fine. Whoever. Yeah, it sounds like it might not be that that those distances might not be that far apart. Then, right? Is it? Oh no, no, no. Yeah, it's really close. Yeah, yeah. No, that's that's, that's great. That's, see that that's that's my style. See again, you're you're building. I'm I'm liking this. I'm this is getting me more excited to to make a make a trip soon. Um, Yes, I'm Chiriqui. That is kind of one of the farthest provinces there. Um, basically, next to Costa Rica, you know, you can drive there in six hours, or you take a bus at night in the at night and arrive there at in the in the really early in the morning. Yeah, it's really close. Yeah, <laughs> for us it feels long, you know. But if you are in the United States and you want to <laughs> go to a different state that is across, yeah. is you know. Yeah, I mean, it's still it's still nothing like traveling around Texas. This is what we're uh, saying. Of course, yeah. Once once I did Texas from Texas to Indianapolis for a PASIC. Yeah, it was a long trip. Yeah, <laughs> that's enough of that. <laughs> so, um, tell me a little bit about the um, kind of the how, how Panama works in terms of school systems with um, with where if how music is part of that. If it is, if it's a separate entity, how does that work? Yes, you know, I'm not an expert in middle education in Panama. I know that the school that I went to, we didn't do much music. It was more of an extracurricular activity. Funny thing that I was seeing my transcript recently, I did see that we were supposed to have music, but we we didn't really do much of that. Hmm. But um, yes, there is, I'm sure there's people that will be more uh, capable to talk, talking about this, but they do have a, a music program that you're, taught in, in, in grade school to students. Um, some schools would have uh, marching bands and, and things like that. Mm, it's It's been more recently the kind of the, the thing of the drum corps and, and, and marching bands. It's, it's something newer that I'm not totally used to because in my times that was non-existent really here. Public schools do more music training than private schools for some reason. Not exactly sure why. So how do you get the percussion bug then? I uh, started taking drum set lessons. I think I did like drum set. And when I was at school, even though we weren't really doing much music uh, classes, there was a marching band. So I joined the marching band. Uh, So that was already like two little venues that I was doing. I was doing, doing a little bit of drum set and a little bit of marching band. And when I was uh, taking my drum set lessons, uh, that's when the teacher, my instructor there suggested that I should go to the conservatory because the conservatory here is not like a higher learning uh, kind of college level institution. It's, it's more like a prep, mm-hmm. you know, middle school thing. So you can go there. Uh, well, and it's now the, the National Institute of Music. We still refer to it as the conservatory, but it's not really the name anymore. Yeah. Uh, but then that's what I did. I went to the National Institute of Music because I wanted to study drum set. I wanted to learn drum set. Um, 
well, they didn't really have a drum set program. They had a percussion program, which it was a classical percussion program. But smart enough, my teacher, uh, Osvaldo Sempris, back then, he was like, oh, sure, yeah, just come on in, percussion. Yeah, you are with me. You know, so I started learning snare drum because he said, like, before playing drum set, you got to play the snare drum. Like, makes sense, you know. Then he's showing me, like, timpani, and I didn't know how that related. But then eventually I knew that I wasn't going to learn much drum set. Uh, so I started taking lessons aside, but I was liking what I was doing there. So then I, I started playing keyboards and mallets and timpani, and I really liked it. So that's how I got in. You know, I it was almost, you know, the, the kind of teacher that I am, you know, I tell students right away what they're really getting into. You know, some t- students want to like, well, this is not really a, a, a conga and bongo school. We do a little bit of that, but it's mostly, you know, symphonic percussion. And some students, they say, okay, maybe this is not the place for me. And they go, this is fine. They go to see something else, you know. But I think that if, uh, you know, I was lucky that he kind of told me this little white lie <laughs> and got me into the program. <laughs> and he just kind of gave me the opportunity just to check it out, you know. While this was going on, were you still doing drum set? Yes, I did drum set. So as I told you, I was doing drum set. I got into the conservatory and then I started taking drum sets on a side. So okay. I was taking it with a different person, uh, some drum set lessons. I kept playing. I have like a little band with friends. I was kind of doing that. And then I, uh, when I was there in that music program, there were uh, other students, older students, that they are really good like salsa players and all that. So they would always do like jam sessions and I would start learning congas and bongos and Latin music from them. Uh, And I got really into it. I I really started playing congas and all this kind of world music stuff, uh, which I I, I got really good at it. And when I started college, really, I was able to kind of like focus more on, on classical percussion and what I wanted to do, concert percussion. Uh, kind of put it away but still you know you always have to play in the steel band and of course i had to play all the congas there <laughs> the bongos and, and timbales so i kind of kept my chops going a little bit there yeah um yes when i was in cincinnati then there was a, it interestingly a really big salsa scene in yeah. the city so i well, i got to play a lot of salsa while i was in cincinnati because awesome. you know not not many percussionists knew how to play it and the few that did didn't know how to read music so I was kind of in that middle point that I could be very useful. When you when you were studying and playing drum set in the band, you were you mentioned uh, what kind of music were you playing as on drum set? Yes, I mostly did kind of rock pop type stuff. Then I started learning more for Latin styles in music. I didn't really get too much into jazz playing. And even when I was in school, my teacher uh, John Lane, I don't know if you know him, a great drum set player. Uh, and he really wanted me to get into into drum set, jazz drum set, and I I I was just not digging it too much. I liked it. I liked to listen to it, but I I knew that you need to be really devoted to it uh, to start learning. So I was kind of focusing on other stuff and and more of the congas and bongos and Latin music because that's something that I kind of already knew how to do a little bit and just kind of focus on that a little bit more. Any specific bands that you were you're playing on drum set? In the rock vein. Oh, like what bands I like? Yeah, yeah. Liked? Yeah. Uh, well, I have like too many like <laughs> uh, uh, different uh, stages, you know, but uh, okay. when yeah. I, 
I I really like kind of rock and roll and, and heavy metal and I of course like Metallica and mm-hmm. all these like metal bands uh, that I was listening to. It was really fun. Uh, all the that you get, you were getting the double bass pedal stuff. Yes, I did have my double bass. Sweet. Yes. <laughs> and then I started doing also like the gahade cowbell thing in the in the food as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, it's awesome. They. Uh, Metallica just did like a, a recorded performance for uh, the Colbert show and they did um, one of their early songs. And it was one that was like, had a ton of double bass and Ulrich could still kind of do it. Like, I mean, he's older, <laughs> but he could still do it. Like it was, it was pretty impressive. Oh, it's amazing. And you know, one of the albums that I really, that was really influential to me was the, was the San Francisco symphony. Oh yeah. That's a good one. It was just amazing. And, uh, and they just, redid that concert i think very recently before yeah, the pandemic they did a second a second uh, second edition of it yeah and it was like sold out like so quick but that's something that i would have paid to go <laughs> <laughs> yeah no, that, that's some that's some really cool stuff there's a um uh, did you ever see the the document the some kind of monster documentary yeah yeah because mm-hmm. there's a whole sequence if i remember where where he's trying to play like one of the like the something from like you know kill them all or something like that he's just like <laughs> He's like so tired. He's like, I could, like, you could tell he's just like, man, this is really fast. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. It's hard. It's difficult. Well, I, I remember in, in my, when I was doing my master's, one of my, I, I kind of was really into the new music, all things. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, like, uh, but then this, this guy wanted to do in his recital, like, he first said, like, I want to do this arrangement from, like, I don't know if he said, like, Disney or movie music to play like a marimba duet. Mm-hmm. And we're all really busy, and that would have been fun. But I was like, ah, I don't know, I'm not too much into it. Like, I don't want to learn all those notes, you know, to play like a, you know. Um, and then he comes to the radio, you know what? I want to play Metallica, and I was like, I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> so he just like grabbed some like piano transcriptions, and we do like a marimba duet. It was amazing, and he played. He was his recital, so he did all the like the guitar solos on the marimba. <laughs> it was nice. So fun. What songs do you remember? Yeah, it was like Fade to Black. It nice. was, uh, I think, maybe start with Nothing Else Matters. Oh, nice. It was maybe th- three or four songs. It was yeah. really cool. Got nothing. That Like Nothing Else Matters would be awesome on Marimba, actually. Yes. Like, that, that it's, totally because it's works. very lyrical, almost like yes. a little classical piece. Yeah. Yeah. The only thing it is works. you got to figure out how to do the rah, like that little growl that James <laughs> right. Hetfield does. <laughs> of course. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Uh, there was another one from whom from whom the bell tools. Oh yeah, yeah. Was in there, yeah. Dun, 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 dun. Yeah, oh yeah. That's, yeah that's really awesome. Great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You need to pull those back out. You need to. Have, yeah. <laughs> of course, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Sweet. So, at what point do you decide you're going to come to you know come to the United States to do your um, to do your higher ed, you know, learning? Yes. Well, you know, uh, the percussion program at the university didn't exist yet. Oh, okay. Um, so Ella started this program maybe when I was in my sophomore, junior year at the university. You know, okay. that's when the, the program started. So so maybe if, if that had started from when I was uh, when I was going to go to school, maybe I would have considered it. But maybe not even because, as I mentioned, they didn't really even have a percussion studio. They didn't have instruments. They didn't have anything. Yes, so I, I just knew that I have to go to the United States to to do to to do that. Uh, I wish I would have somebody that could 
be more of an advisor of how to do the auditions, where I should have gone. I just I just didn't know really much about where which were the schools and all that. But I was really lucky to land uh, in the to land in Sam Houston State with with John Lane, you know, and uh, he was just such an amazing teacher, and I learned so much from him. Uh, and it was, yeah, I was re- just really lucky because I I didn't really do my research much. I just trusted that somebody told me you should come here, you know, and it was the right decision. Uh, yeah, then later on, um, you know, I did maybe considered uh, leaving to maybe for my master's. I knew I want, I was considering auditioning in Canada. I was auditioning, I was considering to audition in London, but uh, I was already kind of comfortable in the U.S. That's what I, I, I did. I just stayed there for the, for the whole time. Had you been to the United States before you started your undergrad? Yes, yes, I have been before a few few times. I I, I had some family in Miami and uh, and I a few vacations that I had done with my family. Were you already um, fluent in English before? Had you had you been studying that the whole time, or was that something you had to pick up? Yes, because you know I was in a I was in a school that they it was a not bilingual but trilingual kind of. So they in my school where I studied it was. Um, uh, Spanish, English, and Mandarin. Fun fact. <laughs> really? Uh, I'm okay. Not, and yes, I'm not. My brother is fluent in Mandarin because after that he went to study and he got his master's degree in 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 Beijing. Yeah. So my brother is perfect fluent in Chinese. Uh, I, I I I didn't go for it. It would have been fun, but I was really focused on doing the music thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but but yes, I was I flu- I was fluent in English. Uh, my uh, maybe I would mess up words. I still do a little bit. I think I, I haven't been talking as I used to like four years ago. I don't do it every day. Sure. Um, but you know, I could understand perfectly. Uh, maybe I was a little bit slower when I have to, to, to speak, to talk. Um, but you know, uh, years passed and I got better at it. Uh, so, so, but I, I did know English already and we do have to take, uh, an English proficiency, proficiency exam. I messed up the word proficiency. <laughs> <laughs> I got you. No, that that's that's great. I mean, that means that's just makes you more comfortable, you know, to to make that when you make that decision. Well, of course, and then many people, you know, you always see the cases of students that they don't pass the TOEFL test, they don't pass the the English proficiency exam. But I I pass my audition and I want to get in and I'll be fine. And then teachers try to vouch for the student for them to get in. But you need to think that you're going to have to be taking math. You're going to have to be taking history. English. (laughs) English, yeah. And a lot of writing. Yeah. All these things that you really need to be proficient. And when you are like taking those core classes, they don't care if you're music or engineering or what. They don't care. Yeah. Right. Actually, uh, maybe in the in the bigger conservatories where you know that you focus more on the music building, right? But when you're like in a in an actual university state school, we were taking all like political science, all mm-hmm. that stuff. Yeah, yeah, it's a different. It's a good, great point. That's a that's a different. It's a different level mm-hmm. of thinking than just than just the music. What was the first? I, so you had been to the United States. You 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 were. You know, you at least visited, but what's kind of the first when you get to school, like, okay, I'm in, I'm here for the long haul, like a, a first interaction or something where you're like, okay, I'm, this is a different country that I now live in <laughs> versus visiting. 
Well, yes. You know, it was interesting because I have been in the U.S. Uh, mm. Maybe I have been in L.A. I have been in Miami. I have been in Boston. Yeah. Um, All these major, major cities. <laughs> yes. New York. Yes. Yeah. I have been in those places. And actually, right before... There was a, a music festival here in Panama and I auditioned for this thing and I got like a scholarship to go for a summer program to Berkeley College of Music. And mm -hmm. I did that. So I went for like a month right before college to, yeah. to Berkeley. Uh, it was fun because I was studying all these hand drums and, you know, that's a, a whole different vibe there. All like pop yeah. music and popular and salsa. That, that's right. what we were doing there. But yeah. I was still in, in Boston, you know. Right. Yes. <laughs> uh, and then from there, I just, you know, school was going to start and I took my plane and gone straight to Texas. And I, I arrived in Houston. Yeah. And Houston is another big kind of beautiful city. Yeah. And when you're an international student and you first arrive somewhere, usually the the university arranges to get you a ride, give you a ride, because you have just no, you know, you don't know anything. Right. And uh, so they pick me up and they start driving and driving and driving. I right. the building's kind of going away. <laughs> <laughs> And that was my first experience kind of in an almost, almost rural place in, in the U.S. And it was totally different. Yeah. You know, like you couldn't, there was no taxis. There was no right. buses. If I had, there was no Uber back then. So like, yeah. you know, I just kind of, I didn't have my phone to find like uh, Google Maps or anything. Mm -hmm. There were no, no smartphones. I sound like super old, but that was not too long ago. Right. Yeah, <laughs> it was only like 15 years ago or so. Yeah. Oh my God. But but it was it was yeah it was really interesting because like they dropped me up. They dropped me. I when I went to college, I didn't even have housing, anything. So oh, I had wow. to figure all that out because everything was so last minute. Yeah. Uh, and and I they dropped me like in a hotel. It, they had a university hotel, so I was mm -hmm. dropped there. Yeah. And then I was like, okay. So I I checked my email, and the person said, you need to come to this office tomorrow to get you all acquainted and get you all set up. Yeah. And I've kind of started walking and I totally got lost. You know, I had no idea where to go. There were no no cars passing by. I couldn't just like stop the, a taxi. Like I couldn't check on my phone until finally I see somebody around somewhere and ask like, where do I need to go? And they kind of like told me where I had to go. Yeah. But yeah, it was just like really different experience from people, for example, like in New York or Boston, there were just cars passing by all the time. Right. right. So, so yeah, it was a very different experience. Um, uh, from the, you know, what you are used to as a tourist. Right. Right. I, and I was also going to say, particularly if it's Houston, that car, that car ride was a, a lot of traffic. I'm going to bet. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I can't remember. It was probably, I mean, it was probably at night in the evening. So maybe once you get to the highway, you, you go pretty, pretty quick. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. And it was maybe like a, a drive. It's usually like an hour, hour and a half to Huntsville, Texas. Okay. I can't remember exactly. Yeah. Yeah, But, you know, when I was still a student there, you know, it was not easy for me to, like, go, for example, to hear the, hear the Houston Symphony. Oh, sure. Know, yeah. Because, you know, it was it was kind of a ride. And, you know, there most of the students were more into music education and marching bands and stuff like that. And they were not trying to go, like, every weekend to hear the symphony. When there were, yeah. like, a major piece, then they would go and I would find a ride. Right. But I wanted to go to many concerts that nobody was interested to go. Sure. Uh, and it was difficult. Like I couldn't, I couldn't get there. Uh, yep. When I was in Pittsburgh, it was so easy. I, my first year, I didn't have a car. I got my car when I was in my second year for masters. Uh, but still, even when I had a car, it was just easier to take hop in the bus and go to the Heinz Hall 
because mm-hmm. there then you don't need to worry about parking and any of that. But it was so easy to move around when you were in an actual city. Right, of course. <laughs> like an actual city, like there wasn't a city, you know. But right. you know what I mean, like that. Like yes. <laughs> all the all all the other all the easier ways to get around. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I hear you. Um, when you first when you first start te- uh, taking lessons at Sam Houston with with John Lane, uh, are, is this a program where they're kind of trying to you know get you a well, as well rounded, um, or were there were there more specific focuses in terms of uh, instruments that you were focusing on. Yes, you know, even though John Lane has his his really particular interests, he's a well-rounded player. He's an amazing player in 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 anything. Anything that he wants to to do, he he does it really well. Um, and that's definitely the the philosophy of his teaching. He wants to um, train people that are going to be useful musicians in the community, and that means playing some drum set, uh, playing some steel pans. Playing, uh, playing marimba solos, multiple percussion, of course, contemporary and avant-garde music because uh, that's what you do there, and and do the orchestral excerpts and playing in orchestra. So we did a little bit of everything, really. Uh, and I, I, even he has some students playing embira and, and other things like that. So it was definitely a, a place we were really well-rounded, as opposed to, for example, when I went to Carnegie Mellon, that it was like an excerpt machine school, you know? Yeah. Um, you know, they would teach you anything, you know? Like, if you wanted to go to play marimba, we have a guy that he was really into marimba playing, and, and he did a bunch of marimba when he was there at Carnegie Mellon. But most people that went to that school were into the excerpt stuff, and that's what we were doing all day, all afternoon, all night, you know, just playing excerpts. Got it. Were you required to march there in sam houston we did yes yes um, <laughs> it was it was amazing texas it was a requirement to graduate i had to complete a year of marching band so yes i had to do it um lane he kind of said like you know i don't think that this is you know you're not gonna be a music educator in a public school so uh what he had me do is just play in the pit so um, I wish I had, you know, I've been in the drum line and get all the chops that I could have gotten there. And sure. my, sec- my second year, I think John also suggested it, but they had so many rehearsals. It was so time right. consuming yeah. that I was like, man, I, I got to do whatever I, I have to be doing, you know, the things that I, I'm sure I had to be doing. Looking forward, it, it would have been a nice experience, but I still um, learn a lot because it's still, when I was playing there, uh, marimba, there was a bunch of high, you know, really fast runs that they were still really good for my marimba playing. Uh, but yes, it was it was <laughs> it was fun to do. Um, watch the football games, and uh, luckily, I don't have any pictures or any evidence that I did it. <laughs> 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 you will not. You will neither confirm nor deny. I cannot confirm that. nor deny. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. That's the way. That's the way it should be. <laughs> it's like I don't. You just kind of give. You you keep changing the year you did it. Like no, I don't right. think. I don't, I don't think I'm. I don't remember that. <laughs> awesome. Oh, I like yeah, it. That's funny. Are you? You're doing performance while you're there. Yes. Are is there like a one recital, two recital requirement for that? We had two recitals for performance majors. We had one recital for uh, education majors and music therapy. Well, no, music therapy didn't have any recitals, mm-hmm. but music education had one recital. We had two. Well, do you remember some of the lit you played on your recital? 
Yes, my oh, I remember my first recital was my junior recital was kind of heavy, and I did see a Thursday. You remember? <laughs> oh my goodness, <laughs> that's a big piece. That's a big undergrad piece. <laughs> right, right. It was, but it, yeah, it was it was good to do. Um, yeah, I did a, a a really nice snare drum piece by uh, Jude Traxler, that is a New York uh, percussionist composer guy. That at the time John saw that piece and he suggested I should do that. I, I might have my programs there. Yeah. Uh, but it was kind of a strong recital. Um, yeah. For my masters, I was we were both really more focused on the masters auditions. Yeah. Oh, sure. So, so then we did a little bit of a of a lighter program. He said, "Like, well, your junior recital was pretty strong, so I'm gonna take it easy on this masters program." And uh, so, but, but I did a really nice marimba piece by one of the some Houston faculty. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we might have done table music. Oh, sure. Yeah. Uh, I did a piece by Leo Brower for multi percussion. I did like Child of Tree, which mm-hmm. was a really nice piece, but it's not that I have to spend hours learning, you know, notes. Right. So in that, it was very creative recital, um, but it was not super technically involved as my junior recital had been. Now, while you're doing the 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 time that you're at Sam Houston, are you doing? Are you spending your summers there too, or do you head back uh, and go back and forth? Yes, I usually head back in the summers. Okay. Uh, I can't remember. In the winters, sometimes I, I stayed there. Yep. Uh, but I would try it if I could to, to come back to Panama. Uh, but for example, when I was going to have my recitals, then I would just stay the winter break, just working on recitals and, and auditions and that stuff. So I would just stay there. Um, but those were the only two times. Uh, things like Thanksgiving break, all that, yeah, I, I just stay there. It was just too uh, very short of a break to travel internationally. Yeah, that makes sense. So well, you- when I was in Cincinnati, though, I did stay. Well, I was already kind of starting to work more and gig and do all that stuff. So yeah. then I would I would stay some summers. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. That may, yeah, that that makes sense. And probably salsa season. I mean, it's it's probably mostly a a, a yes. warmer weather thing. So exactly, exactly, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, it should be all. It's all weather, really. But I'm. But you know, right. You, you can do outdoor stuff, is what I'm saying. And exactly, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, how do you decide to go to Carnegie Mellon for masters? Uh, well. I had gone to, uh, oh, yes. I had gone to Eastern Music Festival. Oh, yeah, in Greensboro. Yes, in Greensboro, yes. Yep. So um, when I was there, I met a, a bunch of people that went to Carnegie Mellon, and they just loved it. You mm-hmm. know, you could be in the best play, but you always complain, right? Sure. <laughs> um, but that was not the vibe with them. The vibe was like, they really love it. They love Pittsburgh. They only had good things to say. And I was like, man, like that just sounds like a really nice place. And of course, their, their financial um, situation was really good. Like they have really good scholarships. Pretty much most of the grad students go for free. Mm. So that place was definitely going to be on my list. And I Wait, so is it, is it, hold on, so is it free with like a assistantship or was it, did you didn't, that wasn't even necessarily part of it? Well, with assistantship, most okay. grad students are awarded an assistantship right away. Okay. Great. So like you don't even have to like compete for a position of assistantship. Like they would give uh, two assistantship for percussion, but the other grad students they would be placed in a different type. So in my case, right. I was doing uh, in the offices of student services. Okay. Uh, and that was a really great administration opportunity for me. And then, then in Cincinnati, I was, and then I do have to apply for an assistantship as if it was a job. 
Mm, Uh, And when I when I took my interview, my boss had gone to CCM. She had worked in the admissions office, and she recommended me. So it was a really great recommendation, and I was able to get into the admissions office in in Cincinnati Uh, because the percussion uh, assistantship in Cincinnati is only one year. So you have to find a a different way to, to, you know. So I was really lucky to, you know, when I was there and I had my admissions office, the other percussion students were like, how do you get that? It's like, well, you just have to apply. But they don't promote that. You like, you kind of need to know that you have to do that. Yeah. Uh, So, well, of of course. So then that was one of the reasons that that school I I really like. Faculty were great. The relationship of the school with the Pittsburgh Symphony. it, it just, it's just an amazing, one of the best, my best years in the United States is when I was there. Um, and I like snow. <laughs> I was going to uh, ask, that's yeah, your yeah, first, yeah. that's your first mate. I mean, you, well, you were in Boston in the summer, so. Uh, right. Well, well, the, the, when I had been like in a, in a vacation trip, you know, I've, I've been in snow. I, I knew okay. snow from before. Uh, but, but, but again, as a tourist, it's not the same as a, you right. know, you know, it, it's different. Okay, let's go to the mountain to do a lot of like ski to say like, okay, I just woke up. I need to defreeze my car. <laughs> right. Yes. You need to drive in it. That's the difference. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, yes. Yeah, so, so of course I have other places that I, I auditioned, but just the deal was too good to pass, you know? Yeah. Um, and who's, and who were the, your main professors there? My main professors were Jeremy Branson from Pittsburgh Symphony, Christopher Allen from Pittsburgh Symphony as well, and Paul Evans. Okay. Uh, and it's so crazy how things work there, and we're so spoiled, but we had a lesson with each every week. So I had oh, wow. three percussion lessons a week. Oh, that's awesome. You know? And it was really laid back. They, you, they would just each one say when they were available for the week, and then you would sign up for a lesson. You didn't have like a, a set a lesson so if you were having a hell of a week you could just not sign up and yeah. not have a lesson but even if you skip a week you still have way more lessons a semester than anybody would have in any program because usually you have one once a week so you have like 14 lessons but if i have usually three three lessons a week mm-hmm. sometimes two lessons a week you know usually we have we have uh, we have a we accumulate a bunch of lessons so right. it was really great and what we usually did is you know play timpani for chris play percussion excerpt for jeremy um play like everything else for paul mm-hmm. is that we each each one of them could listen to whatever you wanted they were great musicians like that they could listen to marimba solo whatever you wanted to uh if you were having an audition you would just play it for for the three of them mm-hmm. and then we had the the friday kind of studio class that it was more like mock auditions yeah uh we had the rep class on mondays where we just uh, play and studied some uh some big pieces that were not necessarily like for auditions but just stuff that are played all the time right like you know like the nutcracker or the planets or an american in paris or whatever yeah. comes you know really frequently to to music stands um so so we had a lot of attention from our, fa- from our faculty, it, at least during those years. I don't know how it is now, but it was just really great. I, I think it was definitely the right decision uh, for me to go there. Uh, yes, and I just really liked it. And then from there on, when I went to Cincinnati, that was just honestly the, the only place I considered was Cincinnati. Um, I just really wanted to study with Alanati. He was the teacher of my teachers. He was the teacher of John Lane. Oh, okay. Uh, and and also another thing is that you know once we go to doctoral uh, degrees, many of the big schools don't offer doctoral degrees. 
you right. know, so like, so, so many, like Carnegie Mellon didn't have a DMA, you stopped at masters and many yep. other schools do the same. Yeah. Uh, so the, the list kind of narrows down. Uh, and well, that's just the, the, the play. I also had an idea that is like, okay, maybe I should take some time off and work. Uh, and I said, okay, what I'm going to do is I'm going to just take one audition. If I get in, I get in. If I don't, I don't. If I take too many auditions, then I knew somebody was going to pick me. Right. Yeah. So that was the idea of just taking one audition for my doctoral degree, as opposed to my master's that I auditioned to more places. Um, but that's, I, I got in into Cincinnati and it also was a great, a great, it was a very similar city to Pittsburgh. So I really felt like at home. It was yeah. not that far, so I sure. could still keep my connections and kind of drive for gigs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, yeah, so it was it was great. Yeah, did you become a Steelers fan while you were there? <laughs> um, no, I I don't follow uh, football too yeah. much and, and 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 baseball and the sports, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, but like the Bengals in 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 Cincinnati and. Yeah. Uh, and and Steelers, I uh, I didn't go too much to the games. Uh, yeah. I'm not. I don't follow sports too much. I, I like it. I when there's something really important, I watch it, like the like the uh, the World Cup in soccer and the yeah, yeah. Super Bowl and stuff like that. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yes, it was funny because in Cincinnati there was like a a Steelers Pittsburgh Steelers bar. <laughs> in Cincinnati. Oh right, of course, yeah. Yeah. So I would I would go sometimes there, and people would tell me like that I was like a trader, but they, their wings were so good. <laughs> yeah. No, well, of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, when you were doing, when you were doing your master's, were you thinking, uh, I'm going to, I'm definitely going to go get a doctorate or were you thinking maybe I'll do, I'll, I'll try out for orchestras and see if I can get a spot in a, in a major orchestra. Well, both. I knew okay. that I wanted a doctorate. Okay. I knew I wanted the doctorates and I, but I all, always considered being in an orchestra. Mm. Um, so I did take some auditions and I was like, let's just see what happens. If I get into a gig, let's, let's do it. Yeah. And uh, I, I don't know how it was going to be, you know, like sure. if, if I get a great orchestra job and, and get the tenure, maybe that's what I would be doing right now. But I knew that I probably wanted to come back to Panama and I knew that if I was going to go back to Panama, I wanted to do some teaching at the university. So it's something that I needed. Um, yes, I, I, I knew I was going to, and maybe that I didn't take that many auditions because of that, because I knew that I want to go into a DMA when I should have been just taking a bunch of auditions. Sure. Did you like, um, were, were you completely fine with the, the kind of the type of practicing that a, that doing a, an orchestral style playing, like, did that work for you? Or were you like, uh, or, cause I mean, it's a diff, cause it's kind of a different, a very exacting and kind of like a, this really, really focused style of, of, um, yes, yes. You know, and it's, it's so good to, to do that kind of work because you learn so much from it. And when you're doing big pieces, if you learn these big marimba pieces or multiple, multiple percussion with the amount of commitment that you prepare these excerpts, I mean, you just grow so much as a musician, you know, like my brother sometimes messes up with me and he hears me practicing like Porgy. Like, are you still playing that? You know, because <laughs> right. it's the same thing he would hear me playing when we were kids. Right. So, so yeah, it, it's true. A little bit is a little bit of um, 
artistically frustrating to just, you know, not learn really real new music, you know, like mm -hmm. it's always playing the same, the same pieces. Uh, but once you get the gig, I mean, you're not playing, I mean, you, those pieces, the, the excerpt pieces are not in programs all the time. You know, you're playing other stuff. Right. So then maybe if you get to the point that you are not taking auditions anymore, maybe you, you don't have to play uh, some of those stuff so much. Um, but um, uh, yes, it's the kind of thing that sometimes when you are working in all this solo stuff, you kind of miss just playing excerpts and, you know, yeah. But sometimes when you're in a, in a stage that you're only doing excerpts for many times and many years and playing orchestra, you kind of miss playing solos and chamber music and that stuff. So I always kept myself kind of doing both things. Maybe when I was doing my master's is when I was really committed to the, to the excerpt stuff. But I was gigging around playing in some of the new music ensembles in the city. And since I was like the, the new music guy, because I came from Sam Houston to study with John Lane, at CMU, at Carnegie Mellon, they always would have me playing in the contemporary ensemble, you know? And then when I went to Cincinnati, that the percussion studio is a very new music type thing. Right. They would always have me play like timpani in the orchestra because I came from Carnegie Mellon, so I, I know all the orchestra stuff. So then they there they thought I was like more of an orchestra guy. <laughs> it yeah. was funny. But then it, it was good because you get all these experience because I'm still playing a lot in orchestra. I'm still playing all these solo, new music, literature, chamber music, I'm gigging around the city, playing more in orchestras and other stuff. So, and then I was also kind of doing a little bit of the popular music scene. So um, I think that goes again with the fact that try to be as versatile as you can, but always keeping a level of excellence in everything you do. Because if you do everything, but not, you don't do anything very well done then it's, it's it's worthless right right but you gotta make sure that the the things that you choose to do you maintain a, a level of proficiency at it for sure and and if you need an outlet you can always go into the drum set room and play master puppets and you know you yeah. can, that can well sometimes we need to just have fun yeah. right so it, it's a lot of studying and really checking out your stick control and all that but make sure you grab some 30 minutes to just close yourself in the drum set room and not practice coordination patterns and stuff. Just jam. Yeah. And have fun. Yes. Yeah. That's <laughs> very important. Otherwise I always, you would go crazy and throw mallets, man. You right. got to do that. Right. Well, sometimes you have to throw mallets anyway, just because it's, it's you know, <laughs> just you got to get that out of your system. And then sometimes you need to play some Paul Simon and some, uh, you know, and some funk music and just kind of just, just, you know, of course, I just, just put those tunes and play your Delacruz to those tunes or your exactly. songs or your Peters, just jam to, to a piece that is in the, in the same tempo. Yeah. 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 That's, uh, that's great. Um, when you're doing between the, your master's and doctorate, what are the, what do you see as the, the things that the, if you like kind of the professors saw that you kind of the, the, the areas where you felt like these were where these are the areas I need to go, particularly after you get to after you get done with your master's and you've had so much focus on the orchestra. Um, what kinds of things were they like, OK, here's here's where you can do some more growing in these particular spots. Technique wise, mm -hmm. uh, it happens sometimes with uh, students that come from a place where they, they really have a very formal training in, in, in music. 
my technique was a little bit weaker than what my brain mus- musically or musicians I, wanted to do, you know? Yep, I hear you. And, uh, and I need to constantly be, be paying attention to that. Uh, my snare drum playing was fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when I went to study with Alan Audi, his concept of snare drumming is just, it's just amazing, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I, I thought I knew how to play snare drum <laughs> until he taught me all the stuff that, that he knew. Yeah. Um, so I did work a lot on snare drum. And you're a doctoral student just playing strokes and, and yeah. going back to basics, you know? Mm-hmm. But that's what we all did as doctoral students that were studying with him. And it really, you know, makes you a better player. And we were not focusing on, on studying like uh, all these big etudes because sometimes when you're in undergrad, you need to make sure you cover this rep. Right. But when we, I already knew the rep, so we could really focus on, okay, let's hear your role. Your role could sound better if you did uh, all that discussions that we have and yeah. really think about the snare drum playing. Uh, so that was, uh, that, was, that was something really good. Uh, you know, I was always, not for performing, but for auditions, I did get a lot of anxious, a lot of anxiety when I, mm. you know, that, that, that sensation that you, you sound amazing when you practice and play for people. But when it's the audition, it's just not perfect. Yeah. You know, so that's something else that I knew I had, I had to work on. And yes, by the end of my career, of my, my doctoral degree, I did feel way more confident with the auditions that I was taking. You know, at least you feel like, okay, that, that's how I play. I, I did what I know I knew I had to do. It wasn't perfect, but I know that's how I sound. Not yeah. like that you see yourself almost like a different person. Like, that's not me. That's not how I play. Why did I play like that? Right? Um, so, yeah, the, the, it's just something that there's always some room to grow. You know, you can always get better. And uh, especially when you uh, specialize more in one aspect, mm-hmm. then it's like, hey, I cannot forget about this other thing. You know, I can, I have to still practice every now, every now and then and make sure that you're doing your scales and stick control and exercises, not not let your hands wear, uh, wear out. Yeah. Um, yes, of course. But, I, you know, I think that's, you know, it was like really a moment to refine my playing. Cincinnati, what is the capstone? Is there is there a document? Is it like recitals group? What are the what are the ending parts of the that program? Yes, um, it's really cool because that's one of the programs that are realizing that a DMA uh, is very different than like a PhD in that sense. And we are we have three options. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, when you're finishing your doctoral trial, you have to do a lecture recital. I'm talking about a DMA. You have to do a lecture recital and you have to do an orals exam. Mm-hmm. And you have to do a written exam. Mm-hmm. And then for your um, for your e- either dissertation, you have like three options. You could do a dissertation. You could do, uh, you take three extra classes of, uh, the, of research level. That okay. means that you can take some like musicology or theory class and you just kind of take the class that you do it. But there were these classes that you were required to take maybe one or two for the program, mm-hmm. but you had to write like a big paper at the end of the class. It was like a really writing enhanced class. Gotcha. Uh, if you take like three extra classes of that, mm-hmm. then the amount of writing that you did with the three final projects, they consider that like equivalent to your dissertation. Mm-hmm. And the other option is a project, and you just propose a project that could be whatever. You okay. know, it could be this podcast, but you will have to justify how this would, you know, 
uh, be, but uh, in my case, I commissioned some works, I performed the works, I documented them, mm -hmm. I recorded them, uh, I wrote a document explaining like a, a like a little uh, description of the whole pro of the whole program. Yeah, uh, that was my project. It wasn't an actual scholarly research dissertation, but I think it was, uh, you know, really important because I was able to. Uh, First of all, commission some pieces that I think is important for by Latin American Latin American composers, and I I was always also able to document uh, some what I call like hidden gems, like some really great uh, pieces for percussion, Hispanic or Latin American composers, or from uh, there's this great bass drum piece by Luis de Pablo, which is an amazing uh, composer from Spain, mm. uh, one of the most important composers. And it's not really a piece that percussionists know too much about it, you know. Uh, and then these pieces by Leo Brower, that was my lecture recital. But Leo Brower is really famous for guitar music and, mm. and, and orchestra music. But he has all this percussion music that is also available. So it's another piece that percussionists don't really know much about. Mm. Um, so those kind of works I was, uh, I was working with in my, my doctoral project. Gotcha. Um, so it's really cool that you have only three options, right? If you don't really know that you want to do a research, you could just, a lot of people just took the three extra classes and get it done. Yeah, no, I mean, that's a good, the way you're phrasing, like it's the way you, when you started saying it, I was like, oh, just three extra classes, but you're, you know, that they have a specific writing focus is, I think, what, what matters. Yeah. And, and that means that that is a longer program. You need to stay like an extra semester or an extra year or something. Sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, no, that's good. That's good. I, I like the, the options idea. Sounds pretty good. Finish up with a segment called Random Ask Questions. Okay. All right. First question is, what's an issue in percussion education that most gets under your skin or drives you the most nuts? I would say not to make clear to students while they're in school that marching percussion and concert percussion are different things. They collide together. They have a common point, mm -hmm. but many students go to college thinking that is marching, marching world earlier on that they that that yes. delineation is made clear right when you're like yeah you're like you know in, in grade school high school you know it, it's most of the freshman year is explaining that you you want to bounce and live and not everything is down strong and sometimes they even finish playing at a two that cross their sticks <laughs> right yes, yes yes yeah of course <laughs> yep well that's what they know they know that that's how you that's how you indicate you're done <laughs> I'm with you. No, that's 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 a that's a that's a good one. Um, all right, this next question you can kind of. I'm trying to think of the, of the right way to phrase it for you, but because um, I, I do ask, I, I frequently do ask this. But tell me if you could tell, talk to me a little bit about your uh, your life in the United States when you as a someone who grew up outside, and kind of your how you managed, um, you know, living in another country. And some of the kind of the challenges that you ran into there. Uh, well, yes, it was you know definitely um, uh, a growing, a maturing experience because you know when I had to learn how to do everything by myself. You know, I I live in a house where you know I didn't have to cook, I didn't have to wash my clothes, uh, all that stuff. You know, so I all of a sudden had to do that by myself. 
Um, again, I didn't have really family connections. So sometimes you're fine, but sometimes you need help in some situation and, and it could be a little bit more difficult getting around. Um, again, in my, in my undergrad, one of the issues, as I said, it was mobility, being able to even like buy groceries. I always have to be depending on rides like, hey, could you take me to, you know, buy food for this week? Yeah. Because, you know, you just couldn't walk there. Right. Um, and uh, when I was living here, you know, it, it was it was fine. Even when I came for vacations home, you know, I didn't have a car here anymore, but I could just borrow my parents' car or something and, and do whatever I had to do. Yeah. Uh, but uh, cultural, culturally, yeah. uh, I, it, there, it was not a culture shock. It was not something that I was so amazed and incredible that I couldn't believe that something happened, you know. But there were, you know, you do notice that there are different, different uh, cultural uh, tendencies from each country. So you just got to be uh, resonate to that and be sensible to that. Yeah, I mean, I mean, one of them is is the kind of use the term Latin American, uh, which for some people, I know some people, it's like, well, I'm, I mean, you might just think of yourself as Panamanian, or you know, like, like that could be your, you know, like in terms of how how do you do you reflect more of of the one country, or do you think of the of the entire country? Well, you know, Latin American is actually. Uh... Yeah, well, Central American is another term that I said that is yeah. very, it's not used a lot in the United States. Mainly right. people just talk about North and South. Right. And uh, and it depends of the views of the continents. Uh, one of the view is pretty much North America and South America starting in Mexico. And that's not right. at all the way you are taught about here. We're taught North America stops in Mexico. Mexico belongs to North America. Mm-hmm. And then... Uh, then starts Central America up to Panama and yeah. then South America. So Central America is a, is a, a, a legit section of, right. the, um, of the American continent. Yes, yes. Right. You're still American. American. Yes. I'm still American. That, that's something you, you probably have to say way more often than you'd Ex- like to. Exactly. You, and, and, you know, I'm not that kind of guy that is going to always correct people when say that. I understand that that's how it's it's done in the, in the U.S., Right. Uh, but, you know, I've been, for example, in Europe and they, in the Yami's like, are you American? And I said, no, I'm from Panama. I was like, and they get confused. Like, isn't that in America? I thought that was in America. I was like, yes, yes, of course. I'm just used from being in the United States that I think you meant that I was from the United States. Right. You know, uh, but yes, I'm American. Just the same way a person from France would say he's a, uh, he's European. Right. A person from Germany would say he's European too. Right. Uh, so if I'm not allowed to say I'm American, then when I want to refer that I'm from a specific continent, what, what should I say? Right. right? Um, so those are little terms that, that, that you kind of notice issues with that. Like the, the idea that it exists at Central America and then that we are all Americans right. and the people from United States should find a better word <laughs> for that. Right. Yes, that's true. <laughs> yeah. Um, that they expect you to have like a hot take on another country that's like in Central America and South America, and you're like, I, <laughs> right? Why? <laughs> but, yeah, yeah. Hopefully, it sounds like at least the way that you've described, you know, your studies, that like the experiences have generally been good. Um, yes, I feel very lucky because I do know people, and I do have friends that have had very uh, bad experiences. Not not in general, but have had instances. 
right. of really uh, of racism and things like that. And I, I've been lucky that I have not been in that situation. But actually, yeah, it, it's been when these particular individuals have been like walking in the streets and somebody yells like, speak in English or something like that. Right. Um, you know, usually that happens when when you somehow get in touch with people that are not in your actual surroundings, because I've always been in the U.S., but really in the college environment, you know, in the in yep. the in the in the cities where have colleges and the population demographic there is very different to the to the other areas, even though I was in Texas, that it tends to be very conservative. Mm-hmm. I was in a, in a town where it was most a college town. Yeah. And, and when there were vacation period, it was ghost town. They were, you know, right. So most yeah. of the you know, worth of the people surrounding me were college students. Similarly, in Ohio, which is very red state. Right. Uh, the bigger cities like Cincinnati and, and Cleveland, those those are tend to be more uh, Democrats. So, right. again, uh, when I was in Cincinnati, it was a different experience. But as soon as I got out of Cincinnati and I was driving, the experience would totally change, you right. know. And when I was working in Delaware, Ohio, it was totally different. Not well uh, in the university, Ohio was lay, and then the faculty and the people that I was in contact with there, it was different. But then, just walking around the the little town, you see the tendencies of most of the people that live there. Right. Yeah, I you, guess that's the reason why I didn't really have really bad experiences because, you know, I was just uh, around people that were very tolerable and understanding and very welcoming. I never had bad experiences. And I have many friends that in Thanksgiving, they said like, hey, man, you should come with my family because you have no family. Yeah. I really have great experiences. I do know people that have had uh, some issues and some instances were really, really bad. But, you know, I'm lucky that I didn't have that situation. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's great. Um, that that's been your experience. That's, that's wonderful. Mm-hmm. It should be everyone's experience is what exactly. it is really, mm-hmm. you know, all right, let's get to some other questions here. These are going to go kind of in very random places. Uh, has anyone nailed an impression of you? And if so, how'd they do it? <laughs> I think most, most of my friends got really good at making like funny impressions of me. Yeah. <laughs> Is there like one thing that they they hone in on? They would always say something called like, like uh, I'm from Panama or something like that. <laughs> you know, I'm Carlos. I'm from Panama. <laughs> and you're like, oh, I don't like any of you. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> All right. Awesome. Uh, what is the most impractical item of clothing you own? You know, in, in Panama, there's something about really having to be really kind of well-dressed. You know, like, it's very hot here. Mm-hmm. But if you go out out of your house, you got to be wearing, like, jeans and pants. And if, if you know, like, if you're a faculty professor, you should be wearing your blazer, your jacket. It's so hot in this country for you to be, like, running around. You. And in the U.S., you see people with flip-flops and shorts oh, yeah. in the summer, you know, perfectly fine. And, you know, if you got to here, get, uh, like, a... a document like right. a little you gotta mail a letter paperwork something yeah right. <laughs> you cannot walking into the building because you're wearing shorts right <laughs> so most of the regular clothing is like very inconvenient here <laughs> <laughs> so you have to really like when you go out you have to really think about it like do i have to actually like, like exactly yes <laughs> it's like 
Oh, of course, yes. It's, it's troublesome and it's like a, a, a whole thing. Like you, I need to go this place. I gotta be wearing long pants and, right. and shirt and <laughs> yeah, yeah. Brush my like, hair. Where, where do they think they live? Like. <laughs> <laughs> That's a lot of pressure now that you now that you say it that way. <laughs> I guess I know that you said you're not a big not a big sports fan, but your country did get into the World Cup a few <laughs> years ago, so that has to be like top of the list, right? Oh yeah, that was a big big thing for yeah. us here. It was the first time that we got into the World Cup. Mm-hmm. Uh, well. Uh, <laughs> well, I mean, where were you? Like, what? Because you were, in the, were you in the States still? No, I, I was here. I was already here, actually. Okay. Yes. I was here. I remember watching the games. They were embarrassing. <laughs> they were, we lost so badly, but people were so happy just yeah. because we were in the World Cup, right? So, like that game that we lost like nine to one. <laughs> yeah. They were, and, and, and when Panama scored that one goal, that first goal, yeah, people went nuts, you know, yeah. and, and internationally, everybody would be like, oh, my God, Panamanians are such losers. They're just here for the game, you know, because other people would be so pissed off at their team. Right. Uh, but even though Panama, they were just enjoying the game and being happy that they were, you know, having fun. It's like, well, that's just because it was the World Cup. You should come and see how we behave when it's a random game with like, you know, right. when you're <laughs> playing like with Heidi and you still lose. Right, right. Yeah. Like, like, <laughs> super <laughs> Super uh, uh, annoyed with that. Yeah. <laughs> well, but the, to me, the memory would well, and this is what I, where I was thinking about. If you were in the states, is that it, it was when you actually qualified that last day uh, when all the game when the U.S. didn't make it and you uh, all yes. did. Mm-hmm. Um, I, exactly. That had to have been the the best the best thing ever. Like well, that day the, was probably the yes. Best. The, the the U.S. Panama has had very a big rivalry with the U.S. and with Mexico. There's yeah. always like games where something like like it's one or the other team, and then you know, uh, uh, but the you know things like that happen. It's not they're always like uncomfortable games like that. Yeah. And there was one game that we I, I remember being in Costa Rica, mm-hmm. and I think it was with the U.S. And, and the, it was that kind of thing where you you know that the game is rigged, right? <laughs> and, and they stole the game to to Costa Rica. But yeah. then the next game was with Panama. So all yeah. of Costa Rica was rooting for Panama. Right. And when Panama scored that goal, I just heard the whole country in Costa Rica. Like, yeah. Roaring. It was amazing to be like in a foreign country and they were all supporting your country. It was just yeah. really beautiful. Uh, also, that that score, that goal that got us into the the World Cup was like one of those moments. Yeah, and it, it, it was not like a little found goal. Like no, it was a goal. It was a it great was goal. goal. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Now I remember because because it was all, all those games were going on at the same time, and and of course all the American fans like I cannot believe we're. Like we're really not gonna make it. This is this is bad. <laughs> right. And sometimes like that happens where, where there's like two two games happening at the same time, but the other game matters more than this one. So then they put a little square here. So yeah, you, yeah, yeah. You can see both at the same time. Exactly. <laughs> Actually, there were three. That was the thing this past one, because um, because because we needed like if we won or tied against Trinidad and Tobago, we would have gotten in. Yeah, but, but then we they. It, but then if either, um, 
if you all didn't be, I don't remember. Was was it was it uh, Costa Rica or Mexico you were playing? I, I can't remember exactly, but uh, so, so it's like you all were playing one of those teams, and then um, uh, uh, Honduras was playing the mm-hmm. other one. Right. And so it was like, we just needed one of you all to lose. <laughs> and, and it was like, and that would, and that was like every, like, and, and both teams like scored, go, like you, you scored a goal late. They scored a goal late. Like, yeah, it was just, it was like, it, it was unbelievable. It was, it was brutal. Yeah. Yeah. But, but to be fair to you all is that the U S kicked you all out of the, of the previous cycle um, yes. in Panama because because you and we a game we didn't need i mean this is one of those where you're like see this is why it was awesome that you lost because because we unfortunately eliminated you in panama Mm -hmm. (laughs) on the final game exactly yes exactly and you know when when and the people american people were so so annoyed when they lose to a team like panama because like, why would you lose to Panama? You are the United States of America. That, why would you lose to that little country? You know, and I knew people were so pissed and all the videos of people like, and you know, that's also kind of the the, the, the reason that, you know, in, in Panama, people get annoyed when we lose, like with dumb stuff. Right. Um, uh, because they um, make a mistake at the end or they're winning but at the end there's been times where you are like winning and people are just walking out of the stadium just to not get traffic yeah. and to the time that they get to the car Panama lost because they scored like two or three goals in the in those three minutes at the end yeah <laughs> uh, yeah let's see how much um, how many more years it takes us to get back into the World Cup <laughs> well I mean we got another cycle coming up so we'll see right <laughs> I mean, from a, from like a, from someone who cheers for the U.S. team, like whenever you all play Mexico, particularly when you play Mexico, I'm totally cheering for Panama. Like, let's not like <laughs> like no, there's no love. Like, that's what's kind of fun, actually, when when I've watched more of the um, of the non-U.S. games that are in the that are in those things is like, you know, there's always just like penalties all over the place and just like everyone's yelling at refs. Those games are, they're so intense. It's, it's, it's <laughs> right. It's insane. Like, I can't imagine how it must be for you as a fan to just like, yes, <laughs> it's gotta be, <laughs> there's nothing like, don't listen. I don't want to talk to anybody. <laughs> yes, It gets intense. It gets intense. Yes. <laughs> well, and awesome. here in Panama also, you have a lot of immigration because a lot of people from Colombia lives here mm. uh, from, from, from different countries. So sometimes when you have these, these matches, with with a country, for example, such as Colombia, where we have such a big community, yeah, it's really unusual to see a stadium that is full of both, you know, of of both countries. Yeah, because usually, you know, if if, if you are in in a country, there is going to be like mostly people from that country that right that is going to be in the, in the in the game. Yeah, that's always the thing with whenever the U.S. plays Mexico in in the in the bigger games is that they always put them in like Utah. Or, or Columbus, because um, you don't want those. Because anytime those games are in like Southern California or or Houston, it's like eighty uh, percent right. Mexican fans, and and yes. you're like, come on, <laughs> <laughs> they're all going to go to those games. <laughs> exactly. Um, anyway, that's a, that's that's very cool. All right, let's uh, let's get to what is a great movie and what is a terrible movie. Shutter Island is a great movie. Oh yeah, yeah. I haven't seen that in a while. 
I need to check that one out. Yeah, yeah. Uh, a, a, a really bad movie. I would, I guess there are many, many terrible movies. Yeah, yeah, of course. <laughs> but if I need to say one, mm-hmm. oh, I don't know. We could circle back. If it, maybe I could circle back if I think about one, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. All right, what is your biggest kitchen mess up? Uh, okay, cool. Kitchen mess up. <laughs> yes, uh, I definitely like just spilled a bunch of stuff. Mm-hmm. Just like like picking something like everybody's ready to eat and just like falls all to the ground. Oh, that that <laughs> has actually happened. Yes, 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 yes. Uh, For sure. Yeah. And do you remember the meal, or you tried to block it out? No, no, no. Yeah, can't remember just random stuff. I <laughs> <laughs> oh, gotcha. What is a favorite book? Oh, okay. Well, hmm. I I would have to say um, Silence by John Cage. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. It's just I just read it. Uh, you know, every few years I read it, the whole thing again. But it's mm. yeah, that's a great book. And I, it, yeah. Mm-hmm. I was just gonna say like I I I definitely know about it, but what's like why do you feel like you have to revisit it? Well, uh, I think it's is is important for the the precautions. All the S is. Uh, it has uh, different essays and it has the credo of percussion there. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's something that I always want to be like familiar to because when I'm teaching uh, percolate class, all those quotes kind of come back to me, you know? Yeah. It seems that when I'm in many like interviews like this, people ask me questions, which, which maybe we haven't talked too much about like why this music or why this other music, because you know exactly what, what I do. Yeah. But when I'm talking to people that don't know too much about this uh, and somehow always come to me like cage quotes you know because like well a really smart composer said this and you know it's like a quote like cage um but it's also varied you know it, it's a book that it, it it talks about many different things um so and a lot of even some like beautiful just kind of zen anecdotes and stories which is mm-hmm. really cool all right as since you have a partial administrator position i want to know what's your favorite saying as an administrator I can say that's on the website. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> I didn't know if you had a, like a, um, I'll get back to you, like one of those. <laughs> you, you have to. Well, when this is a question that you got to answer, you know, yeah, sure. But many times it's like something that you could just Google yourself and be there. You know? <laughs> <laughs> the Why did this question get to me? Like one of those. Exactly. Like. <laughs> nice all right where is somewhere that you have not traveled to that you still want to get to Mm, okay you know i i think i was actually talking about this uh recently ago but i i think i want to go to egypt Mm. um yes i I think i would dig to to see all the pyramids and all that stuff yeah i think that would be really cool are you are you a big history person or is um, it just that that's specific? Yeah, not not necessarily a big history person, but there are some things that do intrigue me and, mm-hmm. uh, and I like. What is either the strangest, most bizarre, or funniest performance moment that involves you? Ah, uh, well, okay. I do have a, a good one for this. Awesome. Um, do you know this piece by John Corey Glennon called Circus Maximus? Yes, but I, I don't know mm-hmm. the specifics of it, but I'm definitely right. familiar. Okay. With so the piece finishes with 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 a gunshot. 
mm. basically. And I, we were playing that. It was an undergrad. Yeah. And uh, we had a guy, uh, one of the trumpet players was in the ROTC. So then he was the guy in charge of, of, of doing the, the final gunshot. Yeah. Uh, and it's a really big piece. So we almost didn't fit in the whole stage. You know, it was like a lot of people on stage. Yeah. And then the percussion section is all crammed in the back. And he was kind of there chilling there in the back. I can remember he was in the trumpet section and had the like the gun play somewhere that he would just grab and come back here to the percussion section where there's more a little bit more space. Yeah. And then do the gunshot. So we were in the dress rehearsal, and I think that was the first time that we were gonna do the gunshot. And then like the the ending of the piece is almost like a remember exactly where it was maybe like a fermata where or a sustained chord where he's kind of racing very dramatically the gun and then just shooting and it's is is a blank you know it's not a real uh bullet mm-hmm. but it is a real gun you know it's not yeah. like a nerf gun it's like right, right. it's a real gun right yeah so then we were there everybody kind of just waiting to to hit the last the last note and the guy is already raising the gun and i just kind of look back like this and it's right pointing to my face oh my goodness right? it's just like that because you know he, he needs to find somewhere to you know to show he's kind of like that and when i look it's like that and, and he does the thing the piece ends everybody whoa everybody clapping because you know we did the thing and the conductor says like you know what i rather the wall than one of the percussionists <laughs> <laughs> It was funny. That had to, man, that had to freak you out when you're like, (laughs) (laughs) I'm here like in the xylophone, just like, okay, here's, this is it, you know. (laughs) (laughs) I better nail this lick right here. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm doing what I like. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Did you, did you come up with a, a terrible movie? Oh, I, I've been asking all the responding all this that I actually forgot about that. Oh, <laughs> no, I'm gonna pass with that one. Okay, that's that's fine. Maybe right. I maybe I'll offend some of the listeners. Like that's a great movie, I think. Oh no no no! That's the <laughs> that's why you at that's that's the joy of that question is that some people are gonna be like what? <laughs> anyway, all right. Last question, uh, Carlos. What one piece of art, whether it's music, movies, books, podcasts, YouTube clips theater, visual art, poetry, et cetera, has impacted you the most recently? Oh, okay. Recently. Let me think about that. So it's a really good one. It's almost because we've been so pretty much closed out inside homes that I haven't had much time to see uh, that much art and go to a museum or to a play or, or to something like that. It's not too recent, but uh, okay. there was a... Uh, uh, this this Mexican sculptor, and I remember being in undergrad, and uh, and he made these granite sculptures, but they were sound sound sculptures. It was it was amazing. He would cut them in such a way that they produced some kind of sound. And we did a little concert with uh, within the percussion summer where we uh, improvised with his his sculptures. But just it was really powerful to me because he he just kind of like you know when we're there hanging out with this guy in this festival he brought a raw granite rock you know like a raw piece of rock Mm -hmm. and he just taught us he brought the tools and cut it and polish it and do the process um they look just so beautiful and powerful on stage and the fact that we just it's, it's not the thing that that is on a museum that you just 
you are not allowed to even touch it. You know, you were encouraged to just come and whack it and, and you know, hear a sound. So you could have, have an actual contact with the, with the, with the, when I say piece, I mean the, the piece of rock. Yeah. Um, so we did a whole uh, improvisation with dance and, and percussion, just playing this bunch of granite sculptures. And that was just really powerful to me. Jesus Morales was the name of the sculptor. It was it was very interactive. I'd say, like, in a way well, yes, that these, that art never that visual art never is. It sounds like. exactly. And when I was thinking, it was like you know I would have never thought for me to like okay I I I can do that when I when I was young thinking what I wanted to do with my life mm-hmm. I never had the opportunity to to you know do rock sculptures you know that nobody told me that was a thing I mean you know that there are sculptures but you don't know that that's an option for you right right. And the, I do classical percussion just because somebody told me like, hey, this is something you can do, you know, grab this mallet and hit the marimba. Like that's something that you could do. And it's like, okay, I tried it. I liked it. So then I just got me thinking like how many things, uh, you, even some people that think that they are not good at doing anything, and yeah. how many things have they tried in the first place? Or had access to it all. Exactly. Had access. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you probably, you know I would imagine that you think that that, comes up in your in your head a lot when you work with your students right yes, definitely well in here in panama we don't have that many famous people but some of the famous people that we do are really big like roberto duran in boxing mm-hmm. and when they have the, this other guy lafit pinkai that he's a jockey with with horses mm-hmm. um and the other guy salandino sandino salandino he he's a long jump uh guy okay. right yeah you know and he's like I don't know many people that just do long jump because just because right you know, people do soccer and basketball and whatever, you know, but you know, I imagine that he just had somebody that got him into it. Right. And he might've been just lucky that he had that person in that morning, his life that said like, Hey man, why don't you try this? Yeah. And sometimes that's all it takes. Exactly, because if that person had not been there, or if he had not been in that situation, or had that opportunity to try it, we would have not had this great of an athlete. Yeah, yeah. No, that's that's great. Awesome. All right, Carlos, we are done. Oh man, Thank you so much. Such a pleasure, man. I had a lot of fun talking with you. Thank you. Same. Yeah. No, this is this has been great. I, I was anytime I get to to talk uh, international. Uh, football, soccer is is always a pleasure. Uh, <laughs> uh, of, course, of course, yeah. Particularly when we can just uh, just yell at Mexico. I think no. exactly. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> There's definitely enemies in in soccer with yes. Panama. Always situations that is like games like that. Like if you or me and they destroy us with a goal, or then we win. Yeah, fun man. I had a I had a blast talking to you. Thanks, yes. man. Same. Absolutely. What a pleasure getting to chat with Carlos just about a month ago. I really hope to get to meet him soon in some way, shape, or form. He's got an open invite to come to Missouri, and I hope to make it down to Panama at some point. It would be great. This week's rave is the 1981 autobiography, The Heart of a Woman, written by Maya Angelou. Over the past few years, I've been slowly making my way through 
Maya Angelou's set of autobiographies. This was her fourth go-around regarding the telling of her own life story. Following the groundbreaking I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings, a work that many of us read while we were in middle school and or high school about her life up to age 17, Gather Together in My Name, which is her life from approximately 17 to 23, Singing and Swinging and Getting Merry Like Christmas, focusing on her mid to late 20s and her live performing career, and this work, which gets us from her late 20s to her early 30s and into the years of the early 1960s. This group of autobiographies are considered groundbreaking for not only being this multi-volume set about one's life, but for the fact that they were from an American black woman's perspective, one that had not been widely seen or read prior to their appearances in the 1970s. I really enjoyed this work for a lot of reasons. One, Maya Angelou's confidence as a writer shines through even more this time around. Two, her ability to see and understand others and their positions and give a full sense of the people she is interacting with and around are even stronger here. Three, her descriptions of the challenges of being in and out of marriages and relationships, interacting with family and raising her son Guy are both difficult and enlightening. And four, her growth as a person is really evident throughout the entire work as she moves from San Francisco to New York City to Egypt and finally in this edition to Ghana. The journey with Maya Angelou is one every person should take. So get to it and start reading these autobiographies. And that's our show. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and leave a comment and a rating. You can always find every episode and the show notes at the homepage at PeteZambito.com slash Pete's Percussion Podcast, the episodes. The show is also on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, and many other podcast locations. If you're on Facebook, like the page Pete's Percussion Podcast. You can find me there on Instagram and Twitter at Pete Zambito or by email at Pete's Perk Pod at gmail.com. And I'll catch you next time. Until then.